Twelve glaring spheres of unendurable brightness spalled the velvety blackness of deep space. They were huge, and so hellishly brilliant it hurt to look at them even with the display's automatic filters. And even as he stared at them, he saw another ripple of glaring light much further away. It was impossible to make out any details of the second eruption, but it appeared to be on the approximate bearing of Javier Giscard's flagship and the state sec battle squadron, which had been assigned to ride herd on him. Lester Torville wrenched his eyes back to the fading balls of plasma, which had been the ships of Citizen Rear Admiral Heemskirk's squadron. The silence on his flag bridge was total, like the silence a microphone picked up in hard vacuum, and he swallowed hard. And then the spell was broken. As Shannon Foraker looked up from the console from which she had just sent a perfectly innocent-seeming computer code over the tactical net to one of the countless ops plans she'd downloaded to the units of 12th Fleet over the last 32 T-months. Oops, she said. Welcome to Honorverse Today, the Honor Harrington podcast, brought to you by TPE Network. Let's be about it. Hello there, Honor Harrington fans. Welcome to our next very exciting, very thrill-packed, very dense episode of Honorverse Today. This is Rollwire Barra, and I am joined, as always, by my good friends Jim Arrowwood and J.P. Harvey. How are you two tonight? Who are you calling dense? Me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and the book. <laughs> oh. Well, I'm doing fine. Me too. Doing and- fine. Awesome. We're yeah. Ready to dive uh, into this encyclopedia. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, speaking of dense, I, I'm going to apologize up front to our fans. This will probably be a long episode. Uh, not just because the book is long, but as I said, it's kind of dense with content, with characters, with action, with laughs, more than a few tears. Uh if we can keep this in a single episode length, I'll be very happy. And with that said, I am not going to waste a whole lot of time. I'm going to turn this right over to Jim so we can get a quick summary, sir. All right. I'll do my best. Uh, we are looking at Ashes of Victory this evening by David Weber. And from the back of the book. The People's Republic of Haven made a tiny mistake when it announced the execution of Honor Harrington. It seemed safe enough. After all, they knew she was already dead. Unfortunately, they were wrong. Now Honor has escaped from the prison planet called Hell and returned to the Manticoran Alliance with a few friends. Almost half a million of them, to be precise, including some who know what really happened when the Committee of Public Safety seized power 
in the People's Republic of Haven. Honor's return from the dead comes at a critical time, providing a huge, much-needed lift for the Allies' morale, for the war is rapidly entering a decisive phase. Both sides believe victory lies within their grasp at last, but dangers no one could foresee await them both. New weapons, new strategies, new tactics, spies, diplomacy, and assassination are all coming into deadly focus and Honor Harrington, the woman the Newsies call the Salamander, once more finds herself at the heart of them all. But this time, the furnace may be too furious for even a salamander to survive. Well, there it is. I have to say, David Weber gets a really good writer for a show lo- for his liner notes. Or he writes them himself. Or he writes them himself. So uh, that's kind of my suspicion. That I suppose we can add that to our list of questions for the mm, interview, if it ever happens. Um, I think, well, we are at Ashes of Victory now, so it was, if you, you know, one of the points we were looking at was sometime between Ashes of Victory and before War of Honor, if possible, so. All right. It's going to be a matter of what his, uh, I know his schedule has been busy, so it's going to be, we're ready when he is. Okay. Well, sounds great. So, JP, you want to tell us about this book? Yeah, get ready, because there's a little extra today to talk about a few things that are referenced in the book. But first, uh, this one is number nine, as you mentioned, of 14 novels in the main storyline, published by Bayon, as they all are, in March 2001. It is a massive 672 pages, so it has some, uh, some heft. The events in this story pick up where the previous novel... Uh, Echoes of Honor left off um, almost immediately after that. So it's a, you know, there's not a gap or anything to wonder what happened between the last one and this one. There are three clear historical references in this book to World War II, specifically the Battle of Midway, the Battle of Savo Island, and Operation Bagration. The first two are literally a fleeting reference, it was a deliberate reference. Uh, and the last one is the name of one of the operations that we see in the story itself. Um, for the historians here, the Japanese often refer to the Battle of Savo Island as the first battle of the Solomon Sea. So if, uh, if you've heard that phrase before, it's, we're talking about the same thing. So real quick, I want to give, because Honor assigns this as homework in the story to some of her students, I want to give a quick recap of what these battles were. And then uh, depending on how the conversation goes, since we don't talk about the book, before we talk about the book, some of this may become important. And if not, then uh, everybody's got the background. So Battle of Midway, that happened from 4 to 7 June 1942. It was a battle between the US and Japan. Carriers in this war, meaning World War, talking about World War II now, not the story, are a game changer for both sides for more than both sides, but in this case, U.S. and Japan, they've changed or were in the process of changing the traditional view of naval warfare and specifically the use of historic use of capital ships, which we've talked about before in the podcast. What what are capital ships and ships of the line and those kinds of things? This was just a month and a half after the Doolittle Raid struck the Japanese homeland. That was on the 18th of April, 1942 
which did rattle Japan. The U.S. flew B-25 Mitchell bombers off the deck of the USS Hornet. Targets were Tokyo and several other cities. Uh, there, are indication, there are indications that it didn't change Japan's presumption that they could control the U.S. in the Pacific, but it, but it did spook them. One of the reactions to that, uh, Japan felt compelled to extend its defensive reach through what they called the Midway and Aleutian Strategy, which was their attempt to establish a shield uh, or ex- you know, extend what they would have considered their protective shield into the central Pacific Ocean. The attack on the U.S. fleet at Midway occurred with this presumption of superiority still at the front of Japan's mind. So they're still superior There's in many ways. That's a whole nother discussion. Uh, the U.S. got a good punch in on them, but we'll just, we'll just fix that problem by extending our, how far out we defend the homeland. Uh, from the Naval History and Heritage Command, uh, there's this nugget. Due to American communications intelligence capabilities, astute intelligence analysis, judicious aircraft carrier tactics, and more than a little luck, the U.S. Navy had inflicted a smashing defeat on the Imperial Japanese Navy. Although the performance of the three American carrier air groups would later be considered uneven, their pilots and crews had won the day through courage, determination, and heroic sacrifice. Against the loss of one U.S. carrier, the Japanese lost four, all of which had participated in the Pearl Harbor attack. More importantly, the Japanese lost over 100 trained pilots who could not be replaced In a larger strategic sense, the Japanese offensive in the Pacific was derailed and their plans to advance on New Caledonia, Fiji, and Samoa were postponed. The balance of sea power in the Pacific at this point had begun to shift. And then I'm just going to add this little nugget. Starting with the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese approached the war in the Pacific as a sure thing. And I'm not suggesting there wasn't dissent and debate within the Japanese government over this, but when it was all said and done, they had high confidence that this was a big win for them. They were overly confident in their own ability to fight uh, and to fool and shape their enemy's conduct, specifically the, the United States, which is what is referred to in the book as being enamored with your own craftiness too much. As a result, They underestimated the enemy, the United States, and that was a mistake. So that's Midway, and you're going to see elements of that battle in terms of tactics and things like that show up in the book, even if Honor had never mentioned the battle itself. The next one she mentioned was the Battle of Savo Island that happened on 9 August 1942. This is the Japanese and collectively the Allied navies in the Pacific, The Imperial Japanese Navy, in response to Allied amphibious landings in the eastern Solomon Islands, undertook a night surface attack on the ships that were screening the Allied landing force. So think about island hopping and the methodical movement toward Japan. Japan says, that's enough of that. Um, We're going to make you stop. The Japanese task force, consisting of seven cruisers and one destroyer, sailed from Abal, New Britain, and I may butcher some of these names, caving New Ireland down New Georgia Sound, also known as the Slot. The Japanese planned to approach Savo Island under the cover of darkness, pass south of Savo, initiate their attack against the Allied Southern Force, then turn to the Northwest in order to engage the Northern Force. 
the second attack completed, the Japanese plan to continue through the channel north of Savo and then steam back up the slot toward Reval. The Allied surface forces were caught unaware and were routed, losing one Australian and three American cruisers. The Allied dead totaled 1,023 with 709 personnel wounded in addition to the, the dead. The Japanese only suffered light damage. The battle had come to be identified as the worst defeat in a single fleet action suffered by the United States Navy. So where we saw at midway overconfidence on the part of the Japanese, here we saw overconfidence on the Allied side. So, um, again, just keep that in mind because that was a theme that Honor was teaching and something that we see in the, in the story itself. Um, one little addition, if the Japanese had chosen to finish off the Allied forces specifically to destroy the transports that were there. Those are key to the island hopping campaign. The war could have ended very differently, but they, they mm -hmm. did not. They, so there's an element of Japanese <clears throat> arrogance in here uh, as well. They did the damage they did, which was stunning. And then they just moved on as if, see, we taught them a lesson. Uh, they should have finished the work, but they didn't. Um, the third and final thing that's mentioned, and it's mentioned throughout the book is operation Bagration. In the real world, in World War II, this happened 23 June to 19 August 1944. This was the Soviet Union and Germany. So now we're in Europe. Arguably a response to the losses the Soviets took at the hands of the Germans during Operation Barbarossa, which began 22 June 1941. So we're several years earlier, almost to the day, when the Germans violated their non-aggression treaty with the USSR and invaded. Uh, interestingly about this invasion, by the way, everyone knew the Germans were going to do this. They were massing troops on the Soviet border. Uh, there, were, there was all kinds of intelligence collected. There was open posturing. And uh, as I recall, historically, the U.S. even warned the Soviet Union that the Germans were going to come across the border. The Soviets chose to pretend it wasn't going to happen uh, because of this treaty and Germany attacked. Now, by the way, this I'm not directly relating to the overconfidence lesson that Honor was teaching. I bring up Bagration because in the book, there is an Operation Bagration, and I don't think that's an accident. So uh, again, the Soviet this was the Soviet answer to the challenge from three, uh, three years prior. It was a multi-pronged attack that took place on Germany's uh, Eastern Front in support of the Allied invasion of Normandy. A lot of people know about Normandy. There's all kinds of movies. Uh, great histories written about it. What is often not mentioned is that the Soviets attacked or fought uh, the Germans here in part to help uh, counter or distract German forces. They fought hard, by the way. Uh, even though the Red Army took significant losses, the operation was very effective, destroying Germany's Army Group Center. That is the name of the unit, the organization. Uh, it, it's not a general descriptor. And bringing the fight into Germany itself, which is something the Germans could not believe. So there is an element of arrogance here, too. They thought just as they had run through Western Europe, they were going to turn on an enemy, on a friend that they had a peace agreement with and invade them, and it would be just as shocking and fast. Uh, it was not the case. By August 1941, it was pretty clear the Germans were failing. Uh, even so, the Soviets took significant losses, so I don't want to minimize how ugly this was. The Eastern Front in general was a, was a pretty hideous 
probably the the ugliest part of the the war in the end. Uh, even though the Red Army took significant losses, the operation was effective, destroying Germ- uh, Germany's Army Group Center, as I said. The combination punch in Normandy and Bagration set the stage for cl- a clear end of the war for Germany and was what uh, and what was left of the Axis. And, and the people that are interested in history can go find out what was going on, uh, specifically in Europe with, uh, with Italy at the time. It, things were falling apart. Interestingly, it's interesting that the peeps chose this name, Bagration, for their operation. Uh, to me, it aligns them, their, the character of Haven, with the USSR historically, which makes sense given that the government of Haven is a Marxist socialist government. It implies the Committee of Public Safety in some way admired and modeled its policies after the USSR and or saw parallels between the historic Uh, Soviet military, and perhaps their government, and their own. I'm making that connection because, remember, our world, the real world, is a part of the universe of the universe. Um, So the universe isn't happening in the absence of Earth as we know it and all that. Um, The peeps must have hoped for a victory in the style of the USSR versus Germany. But it didn't happen. So those are the three big battles I wanted to, or, or events uh, uh-huh. and battles I wanted to mention. A lot of info, but it colors a lot of what we see happen in the fictional story as, as uh, Manticore and Haven go to war. Uh, on a JP, technical, yeah. Keep in mind, David Weber doesn't drop these kinds of historical references in a vacuum. That's what uh, I'm assuming like after you, the like first eight said. of these novels. Yep. And so he's, cons- you know. We, we've got, what, six more books be, to get through yeah. to get to Ashes of Victory. Uh, two of them are anthologies. So, th- yeah, it's th- all three of these battles will sort of have a continuing relevance. Yes. Yep. And we've done, uh, you know, not not talking about our own views necessarily of things, but we've brought these parallels up as they unfold in the story. Hey, this looks like this is France. This looks like England. This looks like... Uh, here we have a, a big dose of it, though. We have significant world players in the real world represented in part. They're not mirror images, but represented in the character nations or kingdoms or countries or states in the book, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Um, little technical special note. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, my hint to our listeners is when you see references uh, to some of these historical events or you see things that you might think are references, go ahead and look it up. Wikipedia is a useful little tool. So this is is not history. This is not specifically about this book. But um, we, the folks who are listening to us know that we have stepped out of the main storyline a couple times. We're going to keep doing it to pick up the uh some of the anthologies and we're doing that for a reason and we've talked about that before Uh, for those who have read the anthologies and are familiar with the main story this is one of the books that is going to drive home why that is reading in that order is is really a cool thing to do it's a good idea there is a lot in this book about a lot of things that are given a lot more color through the anthologies. And just as a quick reminder, we're not reading them willy-nilly. We're reading these things in the order that they were actually published. So if if 
publication was happening at the pace of the podcast, we're waiting for the next book. A book comes out and we're reading that book. That's what's happening. So we're doing main story mostly. These deviations into the anthologies, that's on purpose. And it's paying a dividend, a positive one, when we get to books like this one. Uh, so that's, the that's enough of, of that. these books. Yep. Well, I was just going to add in the order of these books and the interweaving of these anthologies and some of the other materials is not an accident either. They're, yeah. Part of it is because of his uh, his schedule and his workload, but part of it also was done for for things like pacing reasons or to get things introduced right. when, 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 it was, when it wanted to happen. I want to give one more one more, uh, because I keep bringing history and real-world political science, international affairs, and all that into this. Those of you that love that, awesome. I, I appreciate you guys. Some people don't have interests in that. But if you do, or it's a fleeting interest, it's really kind of neat to read a science fiction story and discover that it, it has direct ties to things that m- many of us have seen or read about or learned about in school. And um, I got to believe there are people out there that hear this and then they and they go, wait, I didn't know that that was a thing. That was a real battle. That was a whatever. Or they missed the reference in the book. And I hope that it's kind of exciting to go back and and let this fuel an opportunity to learn about something that you may not have even given any time or attention to before in a positive way. So mm-hmm. uh, there's that. But uh, I want to keep us going here. So we need to shift probably to overall impressions. And I want to hand it off to Jim. All right. Very well. So my overall impressions of this book, this is an incredible book. I enjoyed the first half of this book following on her round after coming back to life. She's going here. She's going there. She's getting these honors. Everybody's yay. Honors back. Right. And uh, the second half blew me away. Not to mention all the characters that were blown away starting in chapter 36 <laughs> through the end. Oh, my gosh. oh, gosh, let me tell you. I was honestly worn out when I finished reading this. And the question I have is, how is Mr. Weber going to top this? Yeah. So, <laughs> And you know he's going to, right? Lips seal. Oh, I'm telling you. you uh, <laughs> if this is the pinnacle so far... And we, we haven't reached the peak yet. Imagine what, what a ride we're in for in the next several books. So, yep. We can't read fast enough. <laughs> I'm going to send it back over to you, JP. Okay. I agree. This was amazing. And it, in some ways, brought quite a few things to culmination that have been building. Like, we just had a, a big war. It also exposes some new threads within the overall storyline, which is neat. So, we're not you know you're not done, which is kind of what you're talking about, Jim. Uh, This is one of the few novels that I've read of any kind where I felt I needed to take a mental break at times. I mean, I just, I had to, I had to breathe, you know, take a, take a a break only to discover I didn't want to wait to see what happened next. And I picked the book right back up before I probably was ready to keep going on. There are a lot of um, there's a lot in here in terms of the main storyline, as well as quite a bit of application of history, which I covered that because I think it was good to get it out of the way, but have it there to be expected. The first few chapters were somewhat emotional, um, more than I anticipated, frankly, I, I knew that wasn't going to be what 600 and something pages was about. I 
went into it thinking, let's get past this and see what's going to happen next. And I found that I really kind of enjoyed experiencing all of that for, you know, with honor, her parents, um, the, uh, you know, the people in her stead, the her fellow officers, all of that was really kind of neat. And then, like you said, Jim, it, and then everything kind of broke loose. <laughs> then when the big anticipated war with the peeps finally happens, Honor misses it. I didn't see that coming, uh, but she seemed to be content with where she was and to make the contributions that she does to the cadets at the academy. That David wrote a character who was as mature as she should be for the rank that she was holding and the time she had been in uniform. It was it was a pleasant surprise to see Honor just do what she needed to do for her country, essentially. Uh, even though I said the big war with the peeps, at the end of this book, I'm left wondering if this might be the first big war of multiple big wars. And, uh, you know, as as people know, I this is my first time through. I am not reading what people write about the whole story or the universe that Weber created because I want to run into this fresh every, every book. But there's some setups in here that I think might suggest that it ain't over. So we'll see what happens. Um, Raul, what do you have? Okay. Now, first of all, the guys have been teasing me about having a lot of favorite books. And my answer to that is, hey, there's 38 freaking books in the series. That leaves plenty of room for one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, However, true. this book really is the favorite of the series for me. For those of us who followed us from the Babylon Project podcast, which by the way, guys, is still up and gaining listeners. Isn't that wild? Yeah. This book is season three's War Without End trilogy, right in the middle. The book is the same sort of emotional roller coaster. There's joy, there's sorrow. You're going to be afraid for characters that you love because we already know Weber has no hesitation about killing off someone important to you. And frankly, you're going to feel unmitigated rage. This is one of three books I was ever ready to throw across the room, except in this case, it was in a good way. Uh, the, to, to get me that angry, David Weber did exactly what he was intended to. And we'll get a little more into that in the plot points. I feel sorry for the book that follows this novel, <laughs> meaning the main series book, because yeah. the bar it sets literally cannot be matched. And I'm not just saying it from a perspective of, oh, it's just so well written that he can never do this. No, 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 no. Just like War Without End, the events occur at very unique points in the story's history and under very unique converging circumstances in the saga. So you, it's literally not possible to have a story like this again. It, it's a shift for a whole lot of things that's going to happen, and there is going to be a lot of stuff that's just as good afterwards, but it, it, it's a really unique book in the entire Honorverse uh, saga, in my opinion. Okay, JP, write it down. Yes. He has declared this his favorite book 
<laughs> so of all the favorites, this is the most favorite. Right. This is the most favorite of the favorites. Write it down so we that we get to talk to David. Yeah. Uh, he won't answer that. I don't know. I was thinking, I wonder if we had asked him if he has a favorite book in the overall story. That's a fair question. He has a favorite and he has a least favorite. So the next time Raul says, this is my favorite book, we are going to remember the date, remember the I time. I will still say one of my favorites. I won't be saying... <laughs> Yeah, we're going to be listening, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I, I know. Because we I care. Know. And we want to <laughs> get you with the gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How oh. about characters? Yeah. Characters, um, characters places, and things. And it, okay. If we had a full review of the characters that were important, I mean, just the important characters in this story, it'd be an entire podcast just by itself. All right. Because pretty much the entire ensemble of the Honorverse cast, with a few exceptions like Alistair McKeon, pretty much the full ensemble is in it up to their ears. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to try and hit some of the most important ones. And even there, there's a lot. Uh, if there's someone, fans, if there's someone that you thought was also important or we missed a point or we missed something important about a character, bring it up to us on an email in our Facebook page. We'll, yes, please. We, as you know, we respond, and we'll definitely give you a mention. So, that said, I'm going to dive off. Guys, feel free to chime in and uh, toss in any thoughts as we get along through this. Honor Harrington, uh, she's really wearing all three hats this time. Admiral, Duchess, and Steadholder. And like you guys have already kind of hinted when it comes to the military side of the game, she's almost a secondary character. Which, A, is a first, and B, in a lot of ways, is almost refreshing. Yeah, it was okay. It was okay that that's where she was. Mm-hmm. Yep. Michelle Hinkey. Mike. Loved her. Always love her. This time, she she's here, she's present, but she's more of Honor's sounding board. Uh, she, she's how we get a lot of the background and commentary and thoughts from Honor out. Yeah, see, I would have said... Almost honors consciousness. Yeah. That's a good way. That's a good, yeah, her conscience, that's a real good way of putting yeah. it. Yeah, Michelle is like a mirror for honor. Mm -hmm. Yep. Allison and Alfred. Uh, okay. <laughs> Alfred's role is a little more secondary, just putting uh, honor back together. Allie, however, is very responsible, very important in being the nexus behind a major, major change in the relationship between uh, the tree cats and the humans. And I love that. And the other thing to mention, even at 50 years old, honors still their little girl. Yeah. And listeners, if you don't understand this, then you're not old enough yet. Yeah. Uh, the reunions will blur your visions a bit. And I just saw Jim, because his camera is on while we're recording this, I just saw the big grin on his face. So yeah, he understands exactly what I mean. Elizabeth Winton the Third. Oh, 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 hold on a second. Yes, sir. Uh, okay. I really, really enjoyed the scene with uh, Honor and Allie sitting, uh, watching the sunset, having a drink, and visiting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, All of the scenes with those two. Well, and and she was treating Honor as an equal. Mm -hmm. and And I just thought that was really great because so far... 
all we've really seen is is Allison. Why don't you get married? Why don't you get married? We want grandchildren. Rah, rah, rah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. this, I don't know if the relationship has changed, but uh, I, I I really enjoyed the scenes with those two talking to each other as equals. It, it's Whoever captured as that equals, transition. but it's still her little girl. Yeah, it's both at the same time. And you think about it, Anna refers to Mama, Daddy. Yeah. Yes. At 50. Well. I love it. I, I just love it. And my, my eyes are misting right now. I have a 40-year-old daughter. You're, you're... And, uh, and you know, I understand this relationship. And it was very well written and authentic. Yeah. There's a, there's a magic that happens, certainly in healthy relationships between kids and parents, where mm-hmm. the... Nobody is anybody's friend. There's lots of love there, but the child is the child. The parents are the parents. They're not buddies. Um, they're, you know, it's, it's parents and children. And then along the way in adulthood somewhere, usually in, I'll, I'll just say, you know, somewhere in, in, in young adulthood, but after the child is not a child by any definition, while they are still the, their parents' child, it's like they become friends. In a way they have not before. Everybody is now an adult. The parents respect what their child has become. Mm-hmm. Um, the child still respects the parents. That foundation that was laid down initially morphs. It's not gone, but it morphs. And we, Weber, I don't know how he did such a great job of painting that. There's a whole parenting mm-hmm. angle here that it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the story, frankly. But I mean, yep. it's there, it's important, but uh, wow. Yeah. And I say, you know, I see that in my relationship with my dad before he passed away. I remember being his little boy. I remember being his son he was proud of. And at some point, my dad and I became true friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're and still his little boy at the same ways. time. Yeah. Yes. But I was still yeah. his, I was still his little boy. Exactly. Yep. Uh, it's like I tell my so, kids, I am the Lord thy dad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Jim's David, o- outside of, I'm going, you know, go, Rel. I said, Jim's been through it. I'm going through that transition right now with Antonio as he's 19 and a half heading on 20 and looking at the PGA Tour. Uh, and you've got a couple years, actually, from some of the stuff that you've been showing us, you're, you're on the front end edge of it now. Yeah, yeah. I'm lagging a little behind you and... Yeah, it's neat, neat stuff. So I, yep. I want to say thank you to David Weber because inside this amazing story about, you know, navies at war, there is a an awesome snapshot of parenting in here, it, and it's what I would hope all parents hope uh, evolves out of their relationship with their kids or all kids who would read this hope the relationship with their parents becomes just totally awesome mm-hmm. stuff. So thank you, Mr. Weber. Yep. Uh, moving on. Elizabeth Winton. The third love her. Uh, yep. You know, at first she was just sort of a concept uh, or a figurehead. She's not anymore. She's not the concept. She's not a secondary character either because she, after that, she, you know, remember she sort of became a secondary character. She is now a main character in the story, and that's important because we're moving not just from the military power, but into the political exercises of power. And I'm referring to her as as Elizabeth now 
because for honor, she's no longer the queen. She's Elizabeth, not just a subject, not just a trusted advisor, but that of a friend. That The friendship that I've mentioned, you kind of see hints of in the past, really kind of cracks, starts to crack open here. I, I started thinking of her more as Beth than Elizabeth or anything else. I mean, she's just a regular person, and she's very cool. And... Uh, with a temper. Well, of course, but yeah, who wouldn't yes, have a temper yes. <laughs> when you got this stuff going on? And, and you know, uh, I'll mention it later, what um, what she has lived through to make her what she is. Uh, but mm-hmm. but this is someone I really like. This is, this is an awesome character. I loved it every time she appeared. You, you're going to keep liking her. I think it's only Justin and uh, Mike that ever refer to her as Beth, though. I, I'm just trying to think. No, I, I don't. Well, so far you're right. Yeah, but that's the way I but, think of her is is yep just a good person who is in charge. Yeah, exactly. Ah, uh, let's see, Hamish Alexander. This is another. I'm making, mentioning him mostly because he's taking again a larger role than just a side figure. And you have to ask, with everything else that's happened in the past, hmm, are we going to see some more development with this character coming forward? There's a storyline with him and Honor, right? And I kind of don't want to hear about it. (laughs) And we've had a break, and I find myself (laughs) wanting to hear about it now. That's darn you. (laughs) 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 Yep. Well, you know, I like Like, like Hamish because he's got a great first name. It means Jim. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah hamish is james and uh he he's just uh he's just a really good guy good commander uh, he knows his business and and i have i have uh developed respect for him mm-hmm. another character that just needs to be mentioned at this point to keep her in our minds is andrea jarwalki jarwalski sorry uh, remember her, the the one that got tossed off the ship by that mm-hmm. idiot Santino? Right. Uh, yep, Honors seems to have taken the interest in her after that hit job, and she's going to continue to be one of her closest aides that we see continuing forward. Yeah. Well, we see that Honor appreciates and respects people who will tell her when she's wrong. And one of the nice things that she shows that Andrea shows us in this story is honor learning to use political power the right way. Yeah, almost comically, right? There's at least once where somebody says, I think it was Mike, gee, honor, I thought you didn't like politics. Yeah. <laughs> and she still doesn't. We're, we're watching the growth of honor Harrington. Yeah. She, as, a, she, as a political person, not just a, not just a military officer. She doesn't like politics, but she is getting to the point where she understands it. Yes. Yep. Moving on. Alan Somerville, Duke Cromarty. Uh, he, he's always been a background character, but he's, he's been Elizabeth's rock all along up until this point, And the Manticorn government has depended on him as well. And frankly, his assassination was a gut punch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. In a way, you see where it had to happen because I, I think, I, I suspect we will see Honor stepping into some of those shoes yeah. going forward. You know, it's kind of set up that way. The, the feeling I yeah, got. the stage was set for that possibility. 
Yeah. The feeling I got when he turned up dead was I, I got butterflies. It's like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen now? You know, yeah. Oh, explicative deleted. You've heard that. You've heard. I've had that feeling before, like the beginning of the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we were sending the cruise missiles in and things like that. You you you, you don't know what's going to happen in the future or, or right. how things are going to go. And it's like, wow. Uh, it it was a it was a a gut punch, as you say. That was a good good call. Mm-hmm. And from there, we have to look at the flip side. Michael uh, Hanvier Highridge. Mm-hmm. We've seen him mm-hmm. in and out. We've already gotten an idea that he's definitely a piece of slime, uh, that there's not very much to like about him. And at the end of this book, we find out that we were actually being generous in our opinion about him. Uh, this was the point where I wanted to throw the book across the room. Yeah. And there's only three books that have gotten me that mad in my life. Along with uh, Elaine DeCroix and Marissa Turner, who in the books is always referred to as New Kiev. Yeah. New Kiev. Uh, they, they set the stage for what essentially is, it's a political coup after Cromartie's death. I mean, that's the only way you can phrase it, that they've undermined and seized power from Elizabeth. So, I mean, it fits the definition of a, it's a non-shooting one, but it's effectively a coup. Scotty, Sir Horace. Yes. Uh, Mr. Harkness, Chief Harkness is now Sir Horace. Alice Truman. uh, These guys are important because uh, they established the doctrines, the new naval doctrines. Uh, Let's go back to your history lesson we had earlier, JP. Uh, That along with the podnots, as the uh, pod dreadnoughts are called, uh, effectively win the war for Manticore. Benjamin Mayhew and his family, there's always that special relationship there with honor, with Manticore, and now there's that relationship, that personal relationship with Elizabeth. Uh, I bring it up mostly because it played a big part in the story, and it obviously is going to have some bearing to pay attention to in the future, especially after the assassination and things that will be happening over the next several books. Samuel Miller, for someone so clever, he is incredibly stupid basically he's a tool almost a sock puppet for haven masada and you know Mm, perhaps there's someone else responsible for uh, some of the stuff that's being engineered in the background basically he's responsible for the death of much of the grayson and manticoran uh, government and we remember wanting to see if he was going to get what was coming to him yeah finally does Abigail what I appreciated Hearn. about that guy showing up, by the way, because mm-hmm. I, I, I don't I don't disagree with anything you said about him. I had, because of all of the other stuff going on, frankly, put Masada in the back of my mind. I mean, they're just not I'm not thinking about them. And it was a it was a I was going to say a pleasant surprise. It was an unpleasant yep. surprise, but in a good way that all of a sudden here's Masada again. And it's like, oh. Son of a gun, those guys. I'm going mm-hmm, and I'm going to bring that up when we get to the places. Actually, awesome. Abigail Hearns. Abigail Hearns is a young cadet at Saganami Island. She's the first Grayson woman to become an officer in the Navy, and she is also a Steadholder's daughter, which means, uh, yeah, she's got a whole lot of rank back home. This is an important character to keep an eye on. 
if you remember from some of the things that we already know, honor was going to die eventually and there was going to be a next generation that takes things over. Yeah, I'm picking up on the rhythm uh, of uh, the writing that goes along with this. Mm-hmm. And it it was like after I was done reading about this person, Abigail, it's like, okay, this is an upcoming star. We might want to be alert. Correct. Robert S. Pierre. You know, there, there's mm-hmm. some hints in this story about him being sort of trapped by the situation and the circumstances. You know what? I never have and never do feel the least bit of sympathy for him. Nope. Basically, Me he neither. is an yeah, he's an object lesson in choosing your friends wisely. You know, there's probably a making your bed and sleeping in it analogy <laughs> in here somewhere too, right? Yeah. So. But you know, you, you want to know yeah. something? To mm-hmm. be completely honest, I saw the end of this guy coming. Of course. I mean, it was just like, okay, this is the book. <laughs> we're gonna have some major changes in haven they didn't go exactly the way i thought they would mm-hmm. but at the same time it's like now's the time yes and speaking of which oscar saint just uh you know in some ways actually if you and jp i'm sure you'll have a comment in on this he kind of fits rob namesake better at points of the story right down to his ending I, yeah uh, though I, perhaps somewhat less i don't have gruesome. a lot to add but i i felt like um weber made a person two characters to tell a to tell yeah. the story he was telling better yeah you know because in, in some ways in some ways uh oscar sort of an amalgamation between louis antoine and uh robespierre with yeah. a description for some reason that kind of makes me think of Napoleon, only without there, yes. any of the redeeming qualities of the above. That's totally fair, bringing the Napoleon piece in, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, except he's a military idiot. He, he has none of the tactical genius that Napoleon had. Though he was an excellent spy and SS thug, and he was also, an, not only was he incompetent as a military leader, he was an inept politician. Yeah. And frankly, the fall of the Republic, People's Republic is pretty much all square on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go down another historic rabbit hole, but this guy, ha- and you know, maybe it's something that we can learn from David. Th- this guy, when you talk about his political incompetence, the, the, the dictators, I'll just use that term, that were associated with the Axis powers— they were all very different individuals and they were in very different political circumstances nationally. Mm-hmm. But they were also in many ways the same guy because of a variety of things. And Oscar seems to be a roll-up of all, all three of those guys. And and I'm going to just say, and it's I think because of the way the book is written where we have an SS, there is a lot of Hitler in this guy. And I'm not going, oh, you know, see the Nazi and all that. The way that he behaves reflects what a lot of historians have written about Hitler. To a lesser extent, but it's there, Mussolini. And then even you can see with the, with um, Tojo in Japan, it, it's like, man, Oscar is all of these people. But, but he uh-huh. is not any one of them to the fullest extent. So back to what I said earlier about countries, you see... Yep. 
you see countries represented in some of the national characters in this universe, but none of them are just one. We've, I have drawn uh, comparisons of Haven to Germany and to the Soviet Union, at least those two. And, you know, it's just, I don't know, I don't know where Weber got the time to learn as much as he did uh, at the age that he was when he wrote these books. It's just neat. But Oscar yeah. and, and Rob Pierre are in many ways the same historic character. And I think David might have split uh, history into multiple parts in the form of two characters because he's not he's not teaching us history. He's telling a story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I can see that it, he uh, he was. Yeah. An, another part of of those other characters. He was the sinister, the um, dark the very dark side of everybody. His answer to everything was just kill. And yep. <laughs> and he was yeah, very efficient. There might be a question of timing, but the answer was kill. Yep. Right. Yeah. And as you say, nothing personal. It meant nothing to him. You know, it's just, well, this person's in my way. Bye-bye. Boom. You're gone. Or just kill him just in case. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of boom, you're gone. <laughs> yep. Yep. And also, speaking of your World War II reference, in particular, Hitler and some of it, that brings us directly to Esther McQueen, uh, who's in the very unpleasant position of doing her job well and therefore becoming a threat. And the reason I, the Nazi historical references, being just like St. Just Paranoia, causes her to make her move against the committee a bit prematurely which is bad for her, bad for the committee, good for Haven ultimately. Right. There's some historical, you know, go back to World War II assassination attempts. Yeah. Well, and then there's, you know, Rommel and yep. uh, the Admiral. What was the Admiral's name? The German Admiral. Uh, I'm not going to remember his his name. Yeah, he was. Uh, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Uh, it may it may come later, and we'll refer back to this. Remember when you asked about the German admiral? Yeah, it was this guy. <laughs> I I am almost certain it will. I think I know the admiral. He he major naval battle in World War One. Yeah, I think it's Dernitz. And then, huh? Admiral Dernitz. That sounds right. Yeah. That. But yeah, McQueen. McQueen. Yep. You're like you're, I said. You're seeing she's elements of of those. Those good generals and those good, good as in air quotes, right? Mm-hmm. Some of these people were our enemies in the real world, but um, they are respectable leaders and, and officers in spite yeah. of their national uh, which, leadership. Yep. Which brings us to Thomas Tiesman, uh, who finishes what McQueen started. And this one definitely is a good guy. Um, he doesn't want to be the king, but he's certainly obviously going to be the king maker and in a very real sense he is haven's george washington for all equivalency yeah mm-hmm. uh we'll we'll see if he manages to avoid the presidency yeah time out for just a second it was wilhelm canaris okay who was uh he he was uh, put okay put in a concentration camp and then uh executed by hanging for turning against mm. hitler so all right so, Heisman, uh, Dennis Lepic, his, his uh, political officer. JP, you had mentioned uh, Mike Henke being honors conscience. 
Uh, Dennis LePick, I think, in some ways, is Thomas Teisman's. Mm-hmm. And he actually grows his own conscience here uh, that begins to drive his actions. And he's not just Teisman's ally by the end of it all. He's an active co-conspirator. We've got a couple pairs that we have to mention here. Lester Tourville and Javier Giscard. They are both relatively minor in this novel, but we need to keep them on the front burner. One thing worth mentioning is Giscard's relationship with Eloise is out of the bag, which brings us to Everard uh, Honecker and Eloise Pritchard. Again, keep them on the front burner, though we are going to see less of one and much more of another as we go forward. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And last but not least, Shannon. Oh, yeah. Do I need to say anything (laughs) more than oops? (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> gotta love shannon for no. <laughs> yep nothing okay. more needed nothing more needed and trust me we are far from done with her as far as places things and organizations that need to be mentioned the manticoran alliance uh, okay so with cromartie's death the manticoran government undergoes a really fundamental change that Frankly, if you look at it, it seems to have all the appearance of becoming exactly what they were fighting a war against. Contrast that with the Republic of Haven. With the death of St. Just, the Havenite government undergoes a fundamental change that seems to have all the appearance of returning the Republic to what it once was. And I'm using very similar wording very intentionally. And what's scary about that is... Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. Just like you described it, right? It appears in each of these political entities that these changes are are possible. And the book ended. Yep. (laughs) Yep. And the book ended. (laughs) Needed to. It was the Masad and Faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, the Masad and Faithful. JP, you you mentioned them. Uh, Basically, they are the terrorist and assassination arm of this side of the galaxy. And what you said earlier about them is exactly right. And you are going to see more of Masada. Maybe not the planet, but the remnants of the faithful. Right. So hey, maybe we'll just call them not an organization quite done with them at yet. this point. Mm-hmm. I have to mention the Solarian League. We keep seeing mention, you know, things mentioned of the Sullies. Uh, we do get some significant information about their structure here, though. And keep in mind, it sounds much, if it, if it sounds a lot like the old U.S. Confederation of States, as far as being defunct, dysfunctional with a huge, corrupt, bureaucratic deep state that actually runs things, that's because it's exactly what it is. It's going to be very, very important in the next half of the series. I'm going to give an honorable mention right now because another government that was mentioned was MESA who you need to keep in mind, they're also associated with Manpower Incorporated, which we've seen mentioned Mm -hmm. several times in the past. So honorable mention there just to keep your... I'm glad that was brief in the book because I was already really tired emotionally and (laughs) mentally. And I thought, no, this can't come back now. But it was cool that we almost got the warning order. Stand by for Mesa. Saganami Island needs to be mentioned. Uh, since so much of Honor's time is spent there, 
this is where we see a lot of the young and coming people introduced. If honor had died during at all costs, a lot of these young officers would have been the ones to take up the parts of the story. And one other group that needs to be mentioned is the Protector's Own, which was the old Elysian Space Navy. <laughs> that was going to be something that could have been politically inconvenient. And uh, Protector Benjamin took it and turned it into an asset that is going to end up far more important than anyone expects. Basically, it's his own private fleet. And guess as a hint, it's not you, you pay pay attention as we continue reading what its crest is. What what is the crest for the members of the protector zone? All right. No spoilers will be given. And I hate to keep going on things, but we do need to take, because of how this book ended, we do need to take a very quick refresher on the political parties in the Star Kingdom. I know he discusses that in one of the uh, in notes of the anthologies, but a few things to point out, and I will try to be as quick as possible about this. Uh, the Conservative Association, this is not American conservatism, okay? Keep that in mind. It is an extremely isolationist, very elitist as far as the aristocracy is concerned. In addition to Highridge, keep in mind, uh, Pavel Young and the Young family belong to this party. The Progressive Party tends to be, you know, it's a little more, well, yeah, they, they, they are, they, they lean towards some of the social programs of the Liberal Party, but they tend to be a little more fiscally conservative. It's like, yeah, we want to do all this focus on home uh, social policies, but we got to pay for it. Basically, they're the group that wants to make all the mistakes that the Haven Republic made to turn into the People's Republic of Haven. And then we've got the Liberal Party, which we will see New Kiev as part of. People will, will see Kathy Montaigne as a new character coming in the future. They're very much idealist, anti-military, anti-imperialist, moderately socialist. Larry Flint is going to have a lot of fun with, uh, with the people from this party coming into the future. They, they seem to be very much along his lines. The centrist party, that's, I uh, believe, Honor, I think, might be from the, might be in the centrist, or she's not in the Crown Loyalists. Uh, the centrist and the Crown Loyalists kind of go together. The centrist are, is your classical liberalism uh, in the libertarian sense. Uh, the Crown Loyalists kind of fall along in the lines with that strong, you know, and then, of course, there's a new men party, but they're irrelevant. So we're not even going to worry about it. So just a quick recap. Those philosophies played a huge role in how the book ended and the shift of power. And it's going to play a huge role in the next uh, several mainstream books. All right. With that, I am going to shut up and turn this over to Jim. Okay. Let's talk about the story, sir. Uh, let's do. I will read a section and pause to see if we have any comment. So, Honor leads her Elysian space fleet home and is treated to a hero's welcome everywhere she goes. Nearly everyone appreciates her return, along with the thousands she brings with her following uh, their escape from the prison planet. Admiral Whitehaven still has strong feelings for Honor. When she arrives at Manticore, she learns that she now has a pair of siblings, 
Her cousin, Devon, has inherited her Manticoran title. She will be out of action for some time because she will need extensive recovery from time during uh, reconstructive surgeries. Uh, Horace Harkness is rewarded for his action aboard the Teps or Tepes with a Medal of Valor, a promotion, and a knighthood. Mm-hmm. I got to say, it's not just a hero's welcome. It's these people in power are just having the time of their lives making honor miserable with embarrassment. Yeah. <laughs> but but they don't see it that way. They're just wow. They everybody thought she was dead and here she's not dead and you know It's from the heart. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Very much so. And I thought all in all um honor was very magnanimous in in, in accepting all <laughs> Even these regarding accolades. the statue even regarding, <laughs> yeah, I'll talk about that a little later. <laughs> All right, moving along. Honor receives accolades everywhere she goes. There is even a statue. And titles. Yes. And statues. Yeah. There's even a statue erected to her memory, much to her chagrin. Uh, she is assigned to the Academy on Saginami Island to instruct upcoming officers to occupy her time. And she launches a study to deepen human tree-cat communication with the use of sign language and to restore some of the skills Nimitz lost while on Hades. I just thought that section of the uh, looking for the language, looking for a comment, I just thought that was really neat. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you forget Nimitz can still hear telepathically. He just is mute. He can't speak. Right. And the whole bit about how, just how intelligent, how sentient the tree cats are is pretty much out of the bag now. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're intelligent. Big time. Mm-hmm. Following the peeps daring and mostly successful attacks against the Manticore assets, it appears the Republic has the initiative in the war, but the Manticorns have come up with a new devastating weaponry and have integrated it into the Eighth Fleet. The Star Kingdom awaits an opportunity to unleash their new technology against the enemy. <laughs> so. Yep. Ugh. Basically, McQueen was right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. When Admiral McQueen learns the Committee of Public Safety considers her too popular and therefore a threat to their rule, she decides to strike first. Her coup attempt manages to take out all members of the committee except for Oscar St. Just, who ends McQueen's operation as well as her life by detonating a nuclear device planted under the Octagon, the headquarters of the People's Republic Navy. St. Just uh, takes on the role of dictator and orders Admiral Theismann home to take command of the capital fleet, protecting Haven. St. Just plans several assassinations, including some successful commanders. Theismann makes plans to stage a coup of his own. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, and he brings in Lepic, and it's pretty much just the two of them. Right. And you how... Uh, ruthless is Oscar. Well, he detonates a nuclear device to kill one person, and it doesn't matter what collateral damage there is there. It's only a few million. Yeah. Jeez. So, 
one scary uh, person. Okay. Admiral Whitehaven launches Operation Buttercup, which drives, I'll tell you what, that name just cracked me up every time I saw it. Buttercup. Isn't that lovely? Okay. Uh, which drives deep. Princess Bride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Operation Buttercup, which... Mostly dead. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> this is not... <laughs> this is not the... What you call it? What? What is it? Princess um, Bride. Princess Bride <laughs> podcast. This is the... Uh, what, what podcast is this? You keep using that <laughs> phrase. I do not think the phrase means what you think that it means. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Jim... As you huh? wish. Yeah, really. <laughs> All right. So here we go. You know, I do have control of the mute button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, is this where you say stops uh, punning? Yeah. At any rate, uh, Admiral Whitehaven launches Operation Buttercup, which drives deep into Havenite territory causing devastation on a scale never seen. While there are a few casualties, one of the features of the new technology is that the Peep Navy cannot return fire because of the 8th Fleet's ability to shoot from a vastly superior range of their new weapons. Plans to go straight to the heart of the Haven Republic and land troops on Nouveau Paris, or should I say Nouveau Paris, are in the works. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's, uh, wow. <laughs> We're talking about the end of the war already. Yep. Which was unexpected for me, so. Yeah, but leave it to the politicians to say. Uh, yeah, there it is, yeah. <laughs> All right, Queen Elizabeth III decides to make a long overdue trip uh, to Grayson to meet Benjamin IX. While there, she finds she is very popular with the Graysonites. St. Just makes a desperate move to eliminate the Manticoran leadership by ordering Masadan terrorists in his employ to find a way. While the leadership of Manticore and Grayson are flying from one location to another, with honor and escort, the terrorists try to shoot down their ships. They succeed in killing Prime Minister Somervale, Duke of Cromarty, and several other major figures of the Manticoran and Grayson governments. Honor, in her small ship, intercedes by stopping a missile that would have killed Elizabeth and Benjamin had she not. Samuel Mueller, a Graysonite steadholder who made the attack possible, is executed for his part. I was very satisfied. Yep. So. Well, I, I wasn't particularly satisfied about, of uh, Mike's dad and uh, Somerville and getting killed, but yeah. Well, yeah, they the, yeah. they found the Mueller. They found the the uh, rat in the grain. So, yep. Back on man about time. Yeah. All right. Back on Manticore. Elizabeth has had enough of the peeps and wants them immediately and decisively attacked and ended. However, owing to the death of Cromarty, the opposition sees an opportunity to seize control of the government. Highridge, the new prime minister, wants to avoid legislation that would weaken the House of Lords and refuses to cooperate with Elizabeth. She loses her temper and makes threats against the opposition leadership. Meanwhile, St. Just proposes 
the opening of peace talks with Manticore, and a ceasefire is initiated. The Eighth Fleet is poised to force a surrender of the Havenites, but with the ceasefire in place, everyone, however wrongly, believes the peeps to be defeated forever. Thus ends the first Havenite Manticoran War. Uh, JP, uh-huh. you need to yell at Jim for spoilers now. It's called the first Havenite Manticoran War. No, it's not it just has called to be the Havenite Manticoran. It has war. to be the war to end all wars. Oh wait. <laughs> Well, that's that the sure war seems to, to be end what, all wars uh, didn't end all wars. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems Highridge never uh, read his uh, history very well. Mm. Now, Elizabeth made some promises. Oh yeah. I wonder if she's going to get to keep them. I am really looking <laughs> forward to. Oh, she will. You know she mm-hmm. will. Okay, I am looking forward to reading that book. Let me tell you. <laughs> How does this unfold? Uh-huh. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, you know it's going to happen and uh y- you just want you just want to see how. It's a train wreck you can't look away from. Well, she okay. couldn't shut them down, but they can't mm-hmm. shut her down either. So No. Fights on. Yep. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Well, and it's very cold in space. Wait a minute. This is not the Wrath of Khan podcast. This is the Honorverse today. Okay. So, St. Just finds himself secure from a manticorn attack and turns his attention to some internal house cleaning. He orders Admirals Tourville and Giscard to be arrested as dissidents and brought to Haven for execution. Admiral Theismann triggers his own coup and plans to restore the planet's original constitution while he holds St. Just at gunpoint. St. Just quips about there being another public show trial and execution. Theismann remarks, there's already been enough of that sort of drama, and says, goodbye, citizen chairman. Boom. (laughs) More satisfaction. Yes, that was an awesome scene. It's like, no, we're not going to play this game. We're just going to end it now. Because Theismann's not looking for any anything. He's not looking to gain anything politically. He's looking to restore. He's a patriot in the truest sense of the there word. There you go. That, that's a he. He made his oath to the Constitution, and we'll we'll get that in when we get to the plot points. I think. Yeah. All right, JP. You got you got some themes to uh, discuss here. Yes. So first one is strategy and how it unfolds. And the takeaway is the enemy always gets a vote. And we see this on both sides. Remember that. Matching military strategy to whatever the national, I'm going to say national, policy is. Uh, It's important that that policy strategy match happens. Otherwise, things are going to go badly due to the mismatch. And related things can also go badly when military strategy is formed and implemented by the wrong people. And we saw some very clear examples. Like that hasn't happened in history. Mm -hmm. Relationship between domestic policy and foreign policy. We see that on, again, both sides and not just in this book, but some of it is kind of coming to a head in this book as we're watching these shifts in, in uh, political power, domestic policy and foreign Mm -hmm. policy. That's the takeaway. Um, Diplomacy, 
Okay, remember dime, diplomacy, yep. informational, military, and economic? All of that was in play here. And especially for the Havenites, we see more of it in what's happening in Haven than we do in Manticore. But uh, all of those instruments of power are in play. And I'm going to say, because it's a lot of domestic politics too, that let's, let's fold that up under diplomacy for the moment. Uh, since diplomacy is dictated by see... whoever's in power, right? So mm -hmm. we are going to see an increasing importance of the diplomacy. Uh, slash politics and the economic in the second half of the series. Mm. And, and you know, JP, I want to say thanks for teaching me about dime because I could see it all in play here. And that, it's kind of fun to play with. You're welcome, but really, I guess that's a thank you for uh, Weber making a story that had all that in there. Yeah. To see. Because <laughs> that's, that's would, the real world. This is I a fictional story. But. Very much. I I would have never known about this had you not had you not brought it up. So And then we've got along. the last strategy or the last theme I'm going to call out is how do you end a war? And that to a great extent goes back to military strategy and how it ties to policy. Uh, starting wars is easy, ending wars maybe can be easy, fighting wars is not easy. But if you don't know at the start what the end state is supposed to be and how to get there and then establish that end state, that is a problem. And you better have there, victory defined when you start it. Yes. Yes. Um, and there are hints that the end of this war may not be as clean uh, as we would like it to be, even if it is somewhat militarily clean at the moment. So those were the yeah, themes what, what that I pulled out me? of here. What's that? What worries me is we now have a party in power. We, we now have a government in power where Manticore is concerned who has a strong motivation. And this is why I went back, you know, going back to the political parties. You, you, have, a, you have a group in power that has a strong incentive to not end the war. Right. They have a strong incentive to end the shooting. They're, they're they, painting a picture and may genuinely believe they're ending the war. They think they're ending the war. Oh, they're ending the perhaps. shooting. But that's right. The, the military is the fighting point. force of the political power, and stopping shooting doesn't stop a war. Mm -hmm. What happened much earlier in the books, they, to keep funding the war, they finally adopted short-term, just for the duration of the war, of the war a progressive tax. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you caught that or not. Yes. Yep. Yes, I did. So... Because the setup for that was in the prior book. The setup was in the prior book, exactly. And, and, and just remember, everyone, that that was not an academic discussion when it happened inside the story. It was they labor over this problem of economics to fuel the war. Mm -hmm. And if you run out of money, you're going to lose. But if you implement bad economic policies to have in the short-term money, you may lose differently because you wreck the underlying foundation of the country that's at war for uh, reasons that actually tie directly to how you run your economy. So uh, yeah, that's enough of that. I think there's going to be more in the future. Yep. Uh, I, I honestly don't know because I don't know, but Weber has set some stuff up. You won't have it. to wait long. <laughs> that's good. The cliffhanger. So, mm -hmm. so how about um, 
unless we have some other themes, let's roll to favorite points of let's, plot. Let's absolutely do that. Uh, Jim or JP, which of you wants to go first? No, I'll go first. Okay. Because first, Jim, Jim, I Jim. want to say... Yeah. Hamish, Hamish, <laughs> Hamish. <laughs> first, I want to say how much I enjoyed the references, uh, the callbacks to the Worlds of Honor anthology. And there were a few that I can remember, including the assassination of Roger III and the reason for Elizabeth's hatred of Haven. Uh, Princess Adrienne's experiences with tree cats and communication and with the building of a ski resort using Honor's understanding learned on Sphinx, her native planet. Of course, I love the battles uh, and almost but not quite felt sorry for the peeps getting routed by the new tech on the 8th Fleet. Uh, I also deeply enjoyed the political maneuvering on Manticore and am looking forward to Elizabeth's revenge. I think I mentioned that. Um, but the huge one went from Chapter 36 to the end and the events on Haven. I read a lot of exciting books, but I have never read anything like The Purge staged in the second half of this book. I read yeah. all day on Sunday to finish this book. And as I asked earlier, how is the author going to top this? You got to know he will, because I am calling him a genius. So those are my thoughts. How about you, JP? Ooh, hard to pick a favorite plot point in here. Um, the whole book was amazing. I'm in agreement with you. Um, but, but here I go. I'm going to do my best. Um, not surprisingly, I love the parallels to World War II. And however, used specifics from that war to inform the story he's telling here. It enables and strengthens the social commentary contained in, in, in the story. And I've said it before, it's not unique to this podcast or any podcast. One of the things I love about science fiction is it's an opportunity to provide social commentary in a way that is not necessarily offensive. And Weber is all over that here. Um, in the context of the parallels to World War II in particular. Um, I already mentioned this, but he doesn't appear to model any of the Honorverse states after single real-world states. It was significant in this book and lets us learn from history as well as apply those historic lessons to the, or, or the book lessons to the world we live in today, either looking backwards or, or contemplating what it might mean today or in the future. Uh, I love at the end of the novel how he how the remnants of the PRH Navy's old professional corps, specifically Theismann, finally put an end to the committee. As bad as they were before Pierre uh, and his friends staged their coup, which they blamed on the Navy, those people, those peeps, pun intended, I guess, were, were much preferred mm -hmm. to the authoritarians who have been in control. Um, more ironic is that earlier in the book, they actually discussed and dismissed the possibility of the Navy, this is the peeps, trying to seize control from the committee. Yep. This is the Navy they blamed, remember, and, it, and it, it's fascinating that it has now done the thing they were falsely accused of, but they did it to the ones who actually illegally seized power. And it was stunning that it was a remnant of the original uh, Navy that was able to do that, but it came with a great price, as we talked about. I'm, I am nervous about how the war between 
the Manticoran Alliance and the Peeps appears to be ending, and we've sort of touched on that as we ran up to these thoughts. To me, it looks like World War I and not World War II. History buffs will recognize that the war to end all wars, and I alluded to that before, was wishful thinking in, in the worst of ways. Sentiment and symbolism without any real substance to make it probable was what was going on. Germany ended up in the interwar period electing Hitler. He was unmoved by the wishful thinking of the nations around him and rearmed with intent to conquer Europe. Half a world away, Japan was on the rise with their aspirations of their own. And as a result, we saw a second world war and it took an unconditional surrender which was hinted at in the mind of Hamish Alexander in particular, I think. It took an unconditional surrender uh, by the Axis to the Allies to truly end the conflict as we knew it. So maybe I'm painting a picture of World War I and II really being one big fat war. That's not my intent, but back to knowing how to stop the war. And we just watched a group of politicians gain political power and they don't have an interest in ensuring that the enemies of the state were put into a position where they could not just come back and do it again. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. But that's uh, as horrible as that is, that is a favorite plot point because I think Weber's got more for us to, uh, I was going to say learn, but also enjoy in the, the form of action and adventure here. How about you, Raul? Well, first of all, JP, I'm going to say I'm sure you just gave David Weber a big chuckle because well, that's you're, nice. you're taking away. I, I, I suspect, I strongly suspect you're taking away exactly what he intended there. We, we, we'll see. My yeah, favorite. No, no spoilers. No spoilers. Points. Oh, gosh. No, no, no. <laughs> the Elizabeth Winton arc. I, I said last time we talked, uh, Linskull did a wonderful, wonderful job setting her up as a main character in that short story uh, for David Weber to run with here. And like I said earlier, she's the the queen. She's not the queen anymore. She's someone we care about that we can relate to even. And the fact that we care so much about Elizabeth now is a big part of what I think makes the high Ridge takeover so upsetting. Um, and speaking of which, I, I have, like I've said earlier, I have to include the high ridge coup here in this part of that plot point. And, you know, it was completely legal. It's following the Constitution, but it was a coup. No other way of putting it. It's not simply creating a new government. And that's, this is why I say that. It's intentionally undermining the crown and eliminating as much of its power and influence as it possibly can. And what really makes it so angry, and this kind of ties things that both uh, Jim and JP have said, is for the, for the conservative association, for the conservatives and the progressives, it's pretty much done in the name of raw political power with no regard to the consequences. And li- like I said, it's one of the three times I've ever wanted to toss a book, throw a book in, in anger. In this case, it's a good thing because the author wanted you that honked. Like you said, JP, I actually had to step away and take a break. And I will admit to uh, uttering a rather strong string of explicatives in the direction of our author the first time I read it. It's like, okay, you're really going to do this to us, David <laughs> Weber. Really? He, here's what we don't know. Here's part of that cliffhanger. Are these people... <laughs> yes. 
okay with potentially wrecking their government for power, which is what we saw happen in Haven differently, but we saw that yep. happen. Or, and this is genuine, I don't, I don't know, we don't know their motives. Or because they are so comfortable in the, what I'm just going to call the freedom that they have, because of the structure of their government, that comfort is, is actually enabling them and the freedom they have is enabling them to use that freedom to actually thwart the structure that grants them the freedom and the protection of a strong mm-hmm. military and all, you keep going. I have no idea what these yeah. people's motives are. And that's a big political cliffhanger for me is, are these bad people with bad intent or are these, I mean this, I mean this in, in the, well, it sure looks not, like that on the, the surface, not the pejorative, not, not an, I'm not being mean using this word. Are these people that ignorant? They may honestly think they're doing the right thing and a good thing. And when they're called on it, they don't get it. They actually, their response to Elizabeth, for example, wasn't politics for the sake of politics. They think they're on the right path. And I think we're left not knowing. Either of those can be very bad. And and we don't know what's, I don't know. Raul, you've read these before and I don't want to know yet. Um, I don't know what they're, what are they I'm not going to tell you, but I will. Mm -hmm. So. I'm not going to tell you, but I will tell you that you will love Mission of Honor. Well, let's get there. Let's read. <laughs> but anyway, I, I interrupted I interrupted you because you're talking about... Uh... No, no, no worries. Okay, uh, two more plot points. That uh, The second of my three is the Tree Cat arc. I've been a Tree Cat fan from the beginning. I didn't need to be won over like you guys. Now, if you'll pardon the very Weber-esque pun, I don't know if either of you follow his website but uh no he seems to be a fan of puns uh which i'll avoid going back to princess bride okay uh the cat is out of the bag on their intelligence okay now <laughs> i can't help good wonder if mm-hmm, i can't help wonder if after all these centuries now that tree cats can talk now that we're able to get them to talk is the real problem going to be getting them to shut up? <laughs> On a more serious note, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how their role as citizens in the Star Kingdom develops. Yeah. Hey, hey, and by the way, because you, you asked, you yes. mentioned the blog, and I said I am not following the blog, and you guys know this. I want to say it for listeners, or even for Mister Weber if he's listening. Um, I, I am avoiding anything that can spoil the story for me, so I have. <laughs> it is so tempting to dive into Wikipedia and his content, his website and forums and all that. And I am, I am on purpose ignorant about where this story is going because I want it to unfold fresh and new. So uh, my apologies well, if I say silly things safe, to the listeners. Except but when it's not. What's that? Yeah. His Facebook page is completely safe. Of spoilers, except when it's not. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna. There's zero risk. And when that. it's not, and when it's not, they're big. I trust so, you to filter yeah, that stuff you, for you're, me. Um, you're probably making the smart move in, in what you avoid. Uh, the last point that I plot point that needed to be brought up is looking, and it kind of connects into the first. Looking at the changing of hands of power. Um, the Haven arc of St. Justin Tiesman, as Jim already said, was absolutely 
exceptional reading. Uh, he, he, Teisman in particular, really embodies the meaning of the idea and intent of protecting his country from all threats, foreign and domestic. Uh, he, he, he's the officer's officer, in, in my opinion. And I'm very glad that the Republic Restoration came after the High Ridge coup because it did leave you with some hope in, for, the, for the future there. And, you know, thinking about it, you know, the contrast between that coup and the Restoration is it, the contrast between those that make both of these such excellent plot points. And from there, Jim, I want to pass the baton back to you, If you, unless you have a comment to add in there. No, nothing. Well, either way, I'm passing it back to yeah, you for quotes. Uh, great plot points. All right. So I'll start with a quote by Hamish Alexander as he inspects the ENS Farnese. Is that how it's pronounced? I don't know. I'm going to run with that. Please forgive me for for my pronunciations if they're wrong. Okay, here's a quote. His jaw set as his pilot, obedient to his earlier orders, swept down the big ship's starboard side, and he studied her damage. Her heavy, multi-layered armor was actually buckled. The boundary layers of anti-kinetic armor seemed to have slagged and run. The inner ablative layers sandwiched between them were bubbled and charred-looking, and the sensors and anti-missile laser clusters which once had guarded Farnese's flank were gutted. Whitehaven would have been surprised if half her starboard weapons remained functional, and her starboard sidewall generators couldn't possibly have generated any realistic defense against hostile fire. Just like her, he thought moodily, almost angrily. Why, in Christ's name, can the woman never bring a ship back intact? <laughs> that, yeah, that was that a needed little moment of humor in here. Oh, yes. It, and I'll, it's true. <laughs> she, mm-hmm. she gets everything except the deck shot out from under, and she shows up with a ship. Hey, look what I got. Or what I had. <laughs> Had. Okay. Past tense, yeah. This is Honor ranting to Mike about her effigy. <laughs> oh, all right, Honor sighed. It's the statue. The statue, Hanky repeated blankly. Yes, the statue. Or maybe I should call it the statue. You know, capital letters. Maybe with a little italics and an exclamation point or two. You do realize... I don't have even a clue of what you are battling about, don't you? Oh, then I take it you haven't been down to Austin City since my recent untimely demise was reported? Except to write a pinnace down to pick you up from the palace? No, Hanky replied in a mystified tone. Ah, then you haven't been to Steadholders Hall. That explains it. Explains what, damn it? Explains how you could have missed the modest little four-meter bronze statue of me standing on top of an eight-meter polished obsidian column in the square at the very foot of the main stairs to the north portico so that every single soul who ever walks through any of the hall's public entrances will have to walk right past it at eye level. (laughs) 
I loved that one. Actually, that was going to be one of mine, and it's like, ah, uh, no, someone's gonna. What's even better is the way she threatens to blow it up, and yeah. Benjamin is like, no problem, we have it insured. How yeah, do you, how right. do you tell these people who dearly love you that you hate what they just did for you? You know, you know, I am facing that right now. Okay, in just a few days. And and I'll tell you, we're recording before, long before something is released. But in a few days, I will be retiring. And I've told everybody, I don't want no parties. I don't want no cakes. I don't want no presents. I don't want any recognition. I don't want a plaque. I don't want anything. Cash would be nice, but... Uh, How many hundreds of people are expected at the blowout? Right. That's That's just it. So... I got one of my fellow teachers to intimate to me that they are planning a little bash on the last day of classes after the students are released at noon. And now I've got to find it in myself to be magnanimous. (laughs) So now I'll tell you what, I totally, totally get where honor is coming from and just wish I minus could... the mansion and the statues and the uh right idols. right right so oh well <laughs> <laughs> I will try not to be a curmudgeon I don't know I I, I don't know how successful I'll be we're gonna see this book going from back to front you're going into this with one attitude and you're gonna have all these kids and teachers and maybe parents around you and you're gonna We'll see all the emotion we saw at the beginning of the book when honor was lovingly received. Yeah. That's my prediction. I could be wrong. Well, actually, actually, it'll it should only be staff because at my high school concert, that's when the parents and everybody we had a little reception afterwards, and it was nice, and I didn't get showered with gifts. But I did get to see someone I haven't seen for a very long time, and that was the principal who hired me. That's cool. And that meant more to me. That meant more a lot more to me than any any kind of gift I could get. So at any rate, this is not the Jim's Going to Retire <laughs> podcast. It is the Honor Verse today, and I'm going to bounce it over to JP for his favorite quote. All right, quotes. here we go. First one is, is Commander Scotty Tremaine talking to Captain Stuart Ashford. Lady Harrington's said it a million times, Stu. There are very few true surprises in naval combat. Surprise is what happens when someone's seen something all along and thought it was something else. So a short and sweet quote. Mm -hmm. And then the other one I have is a discussion between Honor and her mom, Allison, who, who we're all fans of. They're discussing Allison's research into why there are so many tree cat adoptions with the Harringtons. The Harringtons are uh, directly descended from the Meyerdahl beta genetics mod. Keep that in mind. All right. I take it, Honor said very carefully, that your research didn't indicate that we were one of those less successful efforts. Oh, heavens no. In fact, the Meyerdahl betas and the Wintons have quite a lot in common. I don't have as complete a degree of access to the Winton records, of course, but even from the incomplete data in the public files, it's obvious that whoever designed the Winton modification for Roger Winton's parents 
was remarkably successful, as was the team that put together the Meyerdahl beta package. I'd like to say they succeeded because they were so good at their jobs, but I rather doubt that was the case, particularly in light of their relatively primitive understanding of just what they were tinkering with. I think that, as we geneticists like to put it when discussing the vast evolutionary sweep of upward human development, they lucked out. The really unsuccessful efforts, on the other hand, tended to show very high levels of aggressiveness, like the super soldiers on old Earth, and weed themselves out of the genotype. As a matter of fact, as aggressiveness was one of the most common nasty side effects of intelligence modification projects, some of the recipients verged uncomfortably closely on sociopathic personalities without the sort of moral governors people need in a healthy society. And when you coupled that with an awareness that they were designed to be, and usually were, quite a lot smarter at least in certain specific ways, than the normals around them, they started acting like a pride of hexapumas quarreling over who should boss all the other inferior normals about them until they got around to picking out lunch. Um, That, my comment, that is a very disturbing discussion that Honor and her mother are having. Um, It also and I don't know if this is the case, seems to be a tip of the hat to Babylon 5 um, and and the Teeps, who viewed and referred to non-telepaths as normals or mundanes. So uh, I I don't know if that was uh, on purpose or not, but maybe it was. The Babylon 5 story unfolded between 1993 and 1998, and we're obviously talking about a book written in... 2000 were published in 2001. So it may have been a, a very cool, it's, like mm-hmm. I said, that's a disturbing conversation that's happening, but that might have been a very cool tip of the hat to uh, to Babylon 5. I don't know. So, ra- well, uh-huh. what I do know is you have an uncanny knack of picking out little points, it, it, the, the little breadcrumbs that David leaves scattered through the books that are going to become major plot issues going forward in the future well uh in in this case as quickly as the next collection of short stories and i'm i'm there's a lot about that that troubles me i'm glad i'm picking up on stuff as a reader that uh or maybe where david wants wants me or wants us to go Mm -hmm. the reference to super soldiers is another you know the normals or you know super soldiers and all that there i'm feeling like we've seen the setup for this already and um, this might have been another one of those warning shots to get ready because there's some stuff coming. So it's, it sounds like that might be the case. Uh, but over to you, Raul. Yeah, very, very much so. Okay, I've got three quotes and the last two are sort of another one of those contrasting pairs. In the midst, uh, I guess about two-thirds of the way through the story, Honor throws the one big shindig that she was trying to avoid like the plague and couldn't get around something I sounds like Jim could relate to very well. And uh, Queen Elizabeth shows up uh, as one of the guests of honor. Uh, guest of honor in the fr- term phrase, not guest of honor is the, well, actually, I guess kind of both. Honor is out, goes out to meet her. And as they're chit-chatting, um, the queen makes a comment and honor's response is, your comment about Ariel is too perfect an opening to pass up. 
opening? Elizabeth sounded puzzled, and Honor nodded. Nimitz and Samantha have a surprise for you and Ariel, your majesty. Something they've been working on with Mac and Miranda and a Dr. Arif for the past few months. The queen looked completely baffled at this point, and Honor smiled, then turned her head to look at the cat on her shoulder. You had something you wanted to tell her majesty, Stinker? Nimitz bleaked and nodded his head in vigorous agreement. Well, I'm sure Miranda would be delighted to help you out, Honor told him, and turned to her maid. Miranda? Of course, my lady, Miranda replied, but her eyes were on Nimitz, not Honor, and the cat rose higher on Honor's shoulder. Elizabeth followed the direction of Miranda's gaze, and then her own eyes widened as Nimitz's hands began to move. Okay, and then there's a description of the sign language. Miranda nodded and drew a deep breath, then looked directly at the queen and repeated her translation quietly. He said, My wife and I want to teach you and Leafcatcher to talk to each other like we do, your majesty. My God! Elizabeth's tears gleamed under the lights. After four hundred years, you finally proved once and for all that the cats are just as sentient as we are. This is one thing you are not going to give me credit for, your majesty, Honor said almost fiercely. All I had to do was be the person whose best friend had gotten his mental voice destroyed, whose mother was brilliant enough to come up with a notion, and whose money let her find and hire the equally brilliant linguist who actually made it work. If you want to go feeling grateful to someone, you feel grateful to my mom and Dr. Arif and leave me out of it. There was just something about that whole scene. It's like, okay, yeah. I love Elizabeth's reaction. The cats are here and her reaction. Yep. (sighs) The other two-parter starts out with uh, an Elizabeth quote again, another Elizabeth reaction after her meeting with High Ridge. This interview is over, Elizabeth said and stood, shaking with fury, too angry even to notice the incredulity in her guest's eyes as she violated all of the solemn protocol of the occasion. I can't keep you from forming a government. Send me your list of ministers. I want it by noon tomorrow. I will act on it immediately. But, her eyes stabbed each of them in turn, remember this day. You're right, my lord. I'm not a dictator and I refuse to act like one simply because of your own stupidity and and arrogance. But I need not be a dictator to deal with the likes of you either, and the time will come when you, when all of you, will rue this day. And with that, she turned and stormed out of the salon. Yes. Love it. Just gotta love it. And on the flip side, and then I've got a quote comment afterwards. On the flip side... Uh, Tiesman and Oscar St. Just in a final conversation. This is starting out with Tiesman. Basically, St. Just wants to know why, why now? And Tiesman answers him. But more importantly, by issuing those orders, you warned every regular officer that the purges were about to begin all over again. And this time, we're not standing for it, Citizen Chairman. So you're replacing me, are you? St. Just barked a laugh. Are you really crazy enough to actually want this job? I don't want it, and I'll do my best to avoid it. But the important thing is that the decent men and women of the Republic can't let someone like you have it any longer. So now what? St. Just demanded. A big show trial before the execution? Proof of my crimes for the proles and the newsies? No, the Citizen Admiral said softly. 
I think we've had enough of those sorts of trials. His hand rose with St. Just's pulser, and the citizen chairman's eyes widened as the muzzle aligned with his forehead at a meter's range. Goodbye, citizen chairman. And that ends the book. Yes. Now, I have to make a quick comment here on quotes. Some people might be amazed that no one in this uh, podcast said, oops, that's because I think that was sort of a hands down. Everyone would have included it. So it's our favorite quote of the book besides oops. <laughs> and oops isn't going to get old for a long time. Nope, nope, nope. And just for the record, now Jimmy may want to end up cutting that because if Anthea's voice is right, she's going to record. She's going to record that uh, lead up for oops. Fair enough. All righty. So from there, let's go ahead and pass this over to JP for some closing thoughts and takeaways. All right. Um, in the overall story so far, and in this novel specifically, we learned about the price for taking freedom for granted. We're also seeing what appears to be the setup for the story to make the point that even if you give some freedom away rather than lose it to violence, you can't simply change your mind later and restore those freedoms. Authoritarians, however they manifest, don't give up power willingly and you can't vote yourself out of a dictatorship. Historically, democracies or um, more uh, governments that tend toward freedom and liberty, Democracies like that that have elected authoritarians into power or have allowed them to take power or were willing simply to surrender some liberty don't get it back without a fight if they get it back at all. Didn't uh, Benjamin Franklin make a quote along those lines somewhere? um, I'll say yes. If you're thinking about... uh, Or commonly attributed to him, not necessarily. uh, Let me... Yes. um, Yes. And I'm... I was going to paraphrase, but I think I'm going to leave it alone. That's something we can mm-hmm. come back to in another podcast. Is that yep. that quote? Because it's a good one, and I don't want to I don't want to goober it up since you know it actually <laughs> came from a real political personality in our own history. Um, so um, to me, it seems if if they ever get it back, these countries that lose freedom, it's usually because a free country gets involved and fights on their behalf. And World War II. There's a lot of that happening right there, right, in the real world. Um, World War II provides, I I think, ample examples of it. But there's plenty of history before and after the events of that war that paint the same picture. Uh, Just since World War II, the global history of Marxism and communism alone paints the same bleak picture right up to modern times. Uh, In the novels to come, I wonder what we'll see happen with, first... The PRH with the apparent elimination of the committee, and second, with what appears to be a very quiet, but I'm going to call it a dramatic change in the government within the Star Kingdom, with real risk of turning it into something that may not be consistent with the representative constitutional monarchy and capitalistic society that it has been. The position the new governments are taking appear in some ways to resemble the PRH, more than traditional manticore, we can find these positions reflected back to our first meeting with Houseman, who, if I'm tracking right, was, I think was probably a liberal party member, right? If Raul, you had brought up the political parties in a review earlier. Right. Um, I think he was, pro- he was probably, uh, falls into the liberal party. 
I am rapidly um, scrolling up, actually. To, 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 to. <laughs> but we can we can find these positions reflected in, back in the first time we met him as having already been present um, as these kinds of positions being present within the minority of the government, a minority of the government. One final thought or takeaway: history shows us it's relatively easy to live as a Marxist or a socialist or a communist or with those ideals in a free and open democratic and capitalistic society. It's almost impossible to live freely in an authoritarian society. Put differently, it's easy to be charitable and generous in a free and prosperous society. The opposite is true in an authoritarian society. Authoritarians can say what they want about taking care of the interests of the people, because that's usually what their rhetoric is shrouded in. It's incredible how this is usually done by convincing people that they're not safe. I'm talking about the real world. And this is what we saw with the, what, Committee of Public Safety. And the Committee for History Public shows Safety. That or for public safety, yeah. No, no, this is up. Um, I'm just making you, your your point. I'm just making it clear. You, there is historical reference. Yes, 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 yes. Centuries. And, and in fact, that's where I'm going with this. Is history shows that most often the most unsafe conditions perceived or real are actually created or fueled by the authoritarians themselves. Isn't that ironic? Uh-huh. Um, people are convinced or compelled to give up a little freedom for safety or security. And again, what history shows is they act, now remember these are people that if if you out, if you're outside looking in are actually quite safe and comfortable, but they're willing to give that up in the name of a little bit of freedom or or a, sorry a little bit of safety or security. And um, history says that when that happens, they will end up giving up pretty much everything, including their freedom, to those who simply crave power, selfish power. Once authoritarians take power, they don't give it up. And they become very a very real danger uh, and a greater threat to public safety than what existed before them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, President Eisenhower made a quote after World War II, and I think he was the president of Princeton. He was the president of a university, and I think I'm gonna I'm just gonna say it was Princeton. If I'm wrong, I apologize. It's not gonna diminish the quote. And and what he said. Um, was something to this effect. If all Americans want is security, they can go to prison. They'll have a roof over their heads, a bed to sleep in, and three square meals a day or something to that effect. Uh And the point he was making was free societies, it's not just America, free societies come with risk because they're free. Uh, There is room in a free society for bad people to behave badly. That's also why we have laws and courts. Um, right. We can point at bad behavior and say, that's bad, and we can exact a punishment for it. Um, but the risk is, in a free and an open society, is that that can happen. So it's not coincidental that most authoritarian governments in history turn around and go, you're unsafe. We can fix this for you. We're going to make you happy and content. You'll have all that you ever need. No one will threaten you. And example after example in history, and we see it in this book too, is once those people gain power, you have lost all that actually made you free and safe and 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 prosperous economically. So, um, kind of a little bit of a soapbox, I guess. But this was a big fat book, and there was a lot of that in there. I I felt so that was kind of my takeaway. Mm-hmm. And then this, because I don't want to end sounding like a Debbie Downer. This Raul has been my favorite of the books so far. 
I can't say it's my favorite of all of them because I haven't read them all. But this <laughs> one is my favorite. <laughs> okay. And and I was gonna ask you at this point if it might be one of yours too, but yeah, we already know that. <laughs> so there you go. How about you, uh, Jim? You want to go next or Raul? Who's who's gonna? Sure, I'll go ahead. Okay, go for it. Yeah. This was an amazing book, especially with the mood swings throughout the entire tale. Uh, at the end of Echoes of Honor, I felt it was uh, going to get extremely difficult for the good guys. McQueen seemed to have everything going her way. It was a little depressing, but the triumph when Honor came back was contagious. I knew it would be. And then, when the new tech was introduced, it seemed like we couldn't lose. The assassination of Pierre made me feel a little queasy because I didn't know what to expect next. And then the St. Just regime was scary as hell. Uh, I was relieved when Theisman took matters into his own hands and finished the whole Committee of Public Safety thing. Uh, my takeaway from this is uh, the political waters are full of sharks. Be sure not to be swimming when the feeding frenzy begins. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Ah, that one's that should be a, that should be listed as one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> Except it's not in the book. <laughs> so I don't know how I came up with that, but it just seemed appropriate. So Raul, your turn. Okay, I, I'm going to continue. I, I'm going to take the, a lead from how you finished there and with what uh, JP said as far as uh, some closing thoughts. Uh, and that's primarily, and I've mentioned this before, the books leading up to this point, you know, focus largely on the military and informational powers of nations, right? Well, from here on, yeah. we are going to see a shift towards the impact of exercising the diplomatic slash political and the national, I'm sorry, the economic national powers. And that's not a spoiler. It is very clearly telegraphed in this book. So with that said, I'm going to speak to, I, I really feel a need to speak to what, for anyone who's read the entire series, is the white elephant in the room. One of the criticisms that I've seen about Weber, in addition to exposition, enjoying exposition, um, you mean Murray? Yeah. Is, and the honor series in particular, actually, is political preaching. Uh, these books are about the exercise of national powers, as JP has done a great job explaining and teaching about, and an examination of political systems from a historical perspective. Okay? Yeah, there's a few points where David puts some of his personal opinions in it. His position on taxation, which I personally happen to agree with. Uh, his ideas on the franchise being examples. But beyond that, he's basing the politics largely on the historical outcome from the last several centuries in both the political and economic systems he's exploring. And keep in mind, your political system and your economic system aren't necessarily the same thing. I'm bringing this up now because we're... Getting, we're, we're in the transition. We're setting up the transition to the second half of the series. And the stories are going to become as much espionage and political thrillers. And it's going to become even easier than it is now to make 
parallels to current day events. So if you're making a connection to present day events or politics, keep that in mind, first of all. And also keep in mind, these books have been written either, if not years, sometimes even decades before anything that is happening today that you can point to. So if, if, if the political or economic directions bother you, I'd suggest instead of getting upset about, consider why Weber is taking some of the perspectives that he did in the context of history, actual history of the last several centuries. Um, in fact, you can even probably take it more back, you know, even earlier than Scottish thinkers, the Scottish philosophers. Enjoy the action and the characters of the story. And consider that there's a reason that David Weber and Eric Flint got along so well, even though they were pretty much polar opposites uh, it, where political philosophy was concerned. As far as this podcast itself, we're going to continue with honest commentary without dragging current political events into it at all. A couple reasons. Not, it, it, first of all, it's going to date the show and we don't want that to happen. But second of all, let's be honest, that's intellectually lazy. Uh, you, you could do that pretty much with anything. We, we, we don't need to. It won't mean we'll avoid political, economic, military ramifications of the books that we explore. It means that we're going to focus on the big picture of history, both past and fictional future, much like we did with the, the Babylon Project podcast, in fact. Uh, one of the things I love about this book is the way it tackles the great themes. And it, it, you just have a blast doing it. And you learn a lot about history and philosophy and politics and military in the process. So that, that's, where, that's where we're focused on. As far as a takeaway, I am so glad we have a collection of short stories to read next. This <laughs> book, I, I, I'm hoping everyone who's listened to, listening to us has read it, but this book will drain you. It does it in the best possible way, but thank heavens we have a chance to catch our breaths before Mission of Honor. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> My brain is tired. Yes. And from that, let's go and think about ratings. I, I, I will give you a moment to think about, think long and hard about how you want to rate this book. Oh. I, I'm joking. Go for it, Jim. Yeah. I, that, that was all the time I needed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, of course, can't give it less than five. I can't not give it less than five stars. There was nothing about this book that I didn't enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm with you, Jim. Five, you're going to get a solid five from me. This book is not just my favorite Honor Harrington book. It is one of my favorite science fiction books that I've read. Uh, it, 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 it puts him, the, the, this puts him up with, in my opinion, a lot of the great authors of science fiction. Um, for me, it's an easy five. And Jim, do you need a calculator to do the math? Uh, let me take my <laughs> shoes off here. And uh, <laughs> yeah, overall, we have a five, of course. Now on Goodreads, the rating is 4.19 with 14,227 ratings. And Amazon is a 4.6 with uh, 3,155 ratings. So, uh, pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. We're going to be within the curve. I'm sure there's a whole lot of fives out there, 
And when you average it out, I'll tell you what, you know, not bad. Mm-hmm. So, well, uh, on our next very exciting episode, uh, we are going to be looking at Changer of Worlds, and that is Worlds of Honor, uh, book number three. Uh, it includes four short stories, and they are Miss Midship Woman Harrington by David Weber, Nightfall, also by David Weber, From the Highlands by Eric Flint, and this will be his first appearance, and Changer of Worlds by David Weber. So we're getting three David Weber stories and an Eric Flint. Cool. And Raul, this, this is the same Eric Flint that you mentioned, I assume. This is the same Eric Flint that I mentioned. Um, and as far as the, as, as far as some of the short stories, uh, I do have to make a couple quick comments here. Ms. Midshipwoman Harrington, if you are a fan of military history, sounds an awful lot like the title of another book. Yeah, it does, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it does. Um, Enlighten me. Tell them, Earl. Uh, C.S. Forster. Yep. The very first Horatio Hornblower book is Mr. Midshipman Hornblower. Okay. There may be... Those are worth a read for people that haven't read them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They are fantastic reads. Right. And there may be some of us out here who don't know that. Yep. So. Uh, From the Highlands is an extremely, extremely important short story to read. Okay. All right. I think we should. If you have read, if you have not read the other, uh, the other short story anthologies, and you've only read the main line uh, books, or even if you've read Crown of Slaves without, uh, you, you really, before you read Mission of Honor, you need this short story. It, I, I can't stress how important enough of it, it, it is. Uh, at the risk, I, I'm going to have to phrase this carefully. There's some rough spots at the beginning of Mission of Honor, as much as I like the book. And there are pieces that just won't make sense if you don't have what is introduced in the Eric Flint short story. Aside from the fact that it's just a fantastic story to begin with. Yeah. Sweet. But the characters and the events and things that are introduced are essential. Yeah. So do we have any shout outs? As always, Conrad and uh, Rhonda, love your comments uh, always. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's uh, fun to interact with the audience. And we, uh, we love the idea that you appreciate what we are trying to do here. Mm-hmm. And we also need our, send our shout out to Mr. Hank Davis and oh, yeah. the TPE network of fun and informative podcasts who has his first video production coming out. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what date it'll be released, but he did uh, put a trailer up on YouTube and um, it'll give you an idea what's going to happen. looks like it's going to be exciting. Uh, It has to do with uh, his uh, being a professional boxer at one point. So Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing this. So with that being said, it looks like it's time to go. Oh, already? Yeah. Already. <laughs> oh, so, bummer. Yeah. Just when we were getting started. 
Yeah, you I, betcha. So I gotta go because I, I parent I have a book to read. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh. So well, I guess if that's the case, it's, I, I'll go ahead and say good night, everyone. It's always a blast getting together and talking some honors. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Say good night, JP. Good night, JP. So long, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Honorverse today. We welcome your feedback. Email us at honorverse at tpenetwork.com. We are a proud part of TPE Network. Visit us on the web at honorverse.net, on social media, or tpenetwork.com. You can subscribe to Honorverse today by visiting tpenetwork.com slash subscribe. Visit TPE Network for the very best in podcasting. Opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts. They do not reflect the opinions or views of Bain Books, the authors, or TPE Network. Visit Bain.com for the best in science fiction. Many of their books are available from the Bain Free Library found at their site. Music is Honor and Sword by Zakar Valaha. Check his website found in the show notes for all your podcasting music needs. Oh, then I take it you haven't been down to Austin City since my recent ultimately... Ah, damn. Ah, then you haven't seen... Or... Jeez. Explains how you could have missed the modest little four-meter bronze statue of me standing on top of an eight-meter polished obsidian column in the square at the very foot of the main stairs to the North Podic Order. God damn. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm trying to do that all in one breath because that's the way it's written. <laughs> hey, you, you can always add the space out to breathe. Yeah, I could. Uh, explains what now? Explains how you could have missed the modest little four-meter bronze statue of me standing on top of an eight-meter polished obsidian column in the square at the very foot of the main stairs to the North Pota... I'm not laughing at you, I swear. <laughs> I know, I know. Hey, I'm wiped, man. I am, I'm going to admit it's, it's just, right here. I don't feel so just bad Just say that word a couple times and then go back. One more. Portico. Yeah. Portico. Portico, Portico, Portico. <laughs> North Portico. North Portico. Okay. Your comment about Ariel is too perfect an opposite. <sighs> I'm doing a gym.